Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of a changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is uh, Wednesday, February the 5th, 2014, and this is episode 1295 of the Survival Podcast. I have got a great show for you today. I've got a, a guest who uh, I've long been a fan of his writing and his thinking, uh, I finally got to actually meet him and spend some time with him um, here in Dallas at an event. Uh, I've actually been at Liberty Forum twice when he's been there and not really had the opportunity to spend any time listening to or talking to him there, which kind of sucked. But I'm glad to have him as part of the TSP circle of friends now. His name is Jeffrey Tucker. Uh, he's a pretty amazing guy. He's the CEO of a new initiative called Liberty Me, which is liberty.me, and he's the publisher of Lazafair Books. He's also a distinguished fellow of the Foundation for Economic Education, an adjunct scholar to the McKenzie Center for Public Policy, and an Acton University faculty member. He's the past editorial vice president for the Ludwig von Mises Institute and past editor for the Institute's website, Mises.org. Um, that's a pretty big time list of credentials right there, folks. And he's an amazing guy. I'll have him on in just a minute. Before I bring Jeffrey on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Backyard Food Production. Hey, if you want to turn your yard into a food production machine and you want to see all the options for how to do that and pick the ones that work best for you, if you want a solution that's scalable, that you can scale down to that half acre or quarter acre lot in the suburbs or scale up to that 100 acre uh, farmstead, Whatever you're looking for, you'll find it with Backyard Food Production. Check them out today. Uh, best way to get to Marjorie's website. Marjorie Wildcraft is the producer of Backyard Food Production. And I guess I need to change the name. It's hard for me to do. She changed the name a while ago. She changed it to Growing Your Groceries. And Marjorie's just been with us so long, like four years, that it's hard for me to do that, I guess. But the website is growingyourgroceries.com. Backyardfoodproduction.com still leads to the same place. But I would come by our website, which is the best thing with all sponsors. Click on her banner in the right-hand margin or a link in the show notes, and uh, you'll find that she has a discount for all uh, Survival Podcast members. And uh, she actually does a bigger discount, though, if you are an MSB member. So make sure you log into the MSB and get your discount code if you're going to order from her through the MSB. Hey, next up today, Fortress Defense Consultant Frank Sharp Jr. and his amazing cadre of instructors are the go-to place to get your firearms training. I say it all the time. But there is a triangle of gun operator efficiency. The weapon itself has to be a reliable, dependable, effective weapon. You have to have ammunition to run that weapon, or the weapon is nothing but an overpriced club. But the linchpin that actually makes that weapon function is the operator. Without proper training, uh, you have no idea how you're actually going to perform when you need to. In fact, even with proper training, when it really comes down to it, you don't know how you're going to react until you actually have to. But what history has shown us, Time and time again, as those with better training react better and are more likely to survive in a lethal confrontation. It's also shown us that good training prevents accidents. And good training saves lives in the form of also having the training to know how to save lives uh, from a medical perspective. You can get all of that training and more with Fortress Defense Consultants. You'll find them at FortressDefense.com. 
Uh, next up today, I want to remind you about our MSB discount vendor of the day that we'll recommend to you today. Today I'll mention for you real quick, TN Tactical Supply, a veteran-owned and operated company. Team has combined online sales experience of nearly 20 years and know how to make customers happy. The entire team is made up of active shooters, hunters, and tactical survival enthusiasts. Use the products they sell. They offer MSB members 10% off everything in their store except for ammunition. The website is tntacticalsupply.com. You'll find those folks and about 40-plus-odd other discount vendors in the Member Support Brigade. So a good time to remind you that if you'd like to join the MSB, you can do that. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members of the Member Support Brigade banner to learn more. You'll get discounts from 40-plus vendors that'll pay for your entire membership if you're buying stuff in the tactical, practical prepper space on an annual basis. You'll help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. And if you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, please consider joining the Member Support Brigade uh, and getting a discount in order before you do so. Just send me an email before you join. Put service discount in the subject line. Give me one or two sentences telling me about your service. I do this again for all military, law enforcement, and Peace Corps, either active duty or prior service, as well as active duty and prior service first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. Uh, the, the, the place to email me again, Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Subject line, service discount. No other words, just service discount in the subject line. Don't send me your ID card. Don't send me a, a 20 paragraphs. One or two sentences telling me about your services is all that I will need. And I'll get back to you with a discount code to save you even more money on a product that we believe is already an outstanding value. Uh, with that, I want to get into uh, the main topic today as quickly as possible because I'm really excited to bring our special guest on. Again, I have Jeffrey Tucker with me. Uh, he is an amazing guy and uh, an amazing view on liberty, an amazing view on economics, an extremely educated view of economics. And like myself, not quite as recent, but a recent convert to cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. He's here today to talk to us about Bitcoin and virtual currencies as a whole. Uh, but more, what we're really going to talk about today is the bright future of liberty and how freedom can be a do-it-yourself project. And with that, hey, Jeffrey, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. It's really great to be here. Thank you so much, Jack, for having me. It's a real pleasure. Well, hey, I really appreciate you being here with us. Kind of the first thing I want to ask you about, just to try to connect my guests with the audience, I always kind of do this. Can you tell us about kind of your pathway to getting where, where you are now? I mean, you, you've worked with the Mises Institute. Uh, you're a publisher. Now you're, have, you know, you're doing this big liberty movement. You're a big advocate of, of cryptocurrency. Uh, obviously from the, from the, you know, the school of thought of philosophy economics, but usually eight year old kids don't sit around thinking, when I grow up, I'm going to be like this, you know, well known, well thought out economist and I'm going to do liberty movement things. And so how did you become involved with the things that you've, you know, built your career on and, and, and get to where you are today? Well, I fell, I fell in love with economics was that when I was about 18 years old. I went to Texas Tech University, and I thought, what's, what's cool? And uh, <clears throat> economics seemed more cool than anything else. So I became an economics major. But it was a couple of years into that before I discovered 
anything like a, a, a humane economics, you know. So I, I bumped into a book by Hans Senholtz, and I read it, and it was about the Weimar inflation of the 1920s. And you know what that taught me? It was like, okay, so our economic institutions are extremely important. In fact, they can determine the rise and fall of civilizations. You know, what kind of money we have, what quality it is. Uh, that determines whether we're civilized or not, essentially. And I, I felt just enraptured by that worldview, and I couldn't ever let go of it. And so ever since then, I've just I've been romantically attached to the idea of human liberty, sound money, and uh, uh, people working out their liberty, uh, you know, in this world as a way of improving improving life, which is which which is what it's all about, really. So I, I could never let go of it, and and I I still to this day feel this intense passion towards this whole subject. So you know, with, with that said, I've I've been a big fan of your work for a long time. We've actually crossed paths at that Liberty Forum a couple times in New Hampshire, but between interviews and where you were and where I was, I never really got to speak to you up there, and I didn't get to listen to you talk, which really kind of sucked because I wanted to. Um, but I finally did get to hear what you had to say about all of the things that we're going to be talking about today at an event here in Dallas, Texas. And um, you were mentioning some brilliant economist, I don't remember who, um, but you were talking about government and money. And and the way you put this, I mean, if I didn't remember anything else you said that night, I would, I would remember this, even though I'm still paraphrasing quite maybe the order it went in. The government should not be trusted with money, ever, under any circumstances. At all, ever, as in never. Um, can, you, can you explain why? You know, some people might hear that and think it's a joke. <laughs> you really mean that? That was that was it. Uh, yeah, I was giving a, a presentation of Hayek's view, right? So this is a guy who's like a mega scholar, Nobel Prize in economics, and he'd been struggling for his entire life, like a century to try to reform the money system from within. And he realized in 1974, right after he got the Nobel Prize, that this is a stupid undertaking. The government would never reform. Uh, and so we had to reinvent money from the ground up. You know, we had to make our own. We had to, and because and, government doesn't like to reform. The only way you can actually uh, have reasonable, rational, uh, freedom-based institutions is by inventing them yourself. So I accept this, and I had read right before, uh, Jack, before <clears throat> I gave that speech, I had just read this, this Hayek monograph from 1974, and it blew me away. If you think about it, 1974, the government had just like completely eliminated any f uh, physical reality from the from the money. You know, it it had uh, just dislodged the dollar from any attachment to gold, and meaning that the government had total power to create as much as they wanted. And that I think that disgusted Hayek, and he thought, well, this is ridiculous. You you, you know, there's got to be something done about this. So he urged people to you know, just basically make their own private currency. Well, we had to wait like 25 years or 30 years or or longer. But now we've actually got it. You know, I mean, we've got something approaching that. And it's, it's, it's mind blowing. And I tell you what amazes me about it. I don't think we realized until Bitcoin just how bad our money really is. You know, we've lived with it with this crappy money for like a hundred years, and like nobody's even alive who remembers sound what sound money was like, and 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 you adapt to tyranny, you adapt to despotism, and you you kind of go, okay, this is the sort of crappy world we live in, you know, and then suddenly like one guy comes along and says, okay, wait, here's your freedom-based institution, uh, try it out if you like, 
and then your eyes open. You know, you just you're amazed at what at what you see. You know, I mean, that's amazing. Bitcoin is amazing. It, it really is, and it is our lead lead off subject today because we're talking about liberty, and I, I think currency. And the private control of currency is is an important step toward liberty. When it comes to Bitcoin, though, and I don't say this lightly, um, I don't consider myself to be a you know a financial genius or anything like that. But you know, I really do understand money, and, and I understand money fundamentally well. I understand money at a level I think most people, you know, other than people like yourself who, who you know frankly understand it better than I do, even don't really understand money and what money is and how money actually works. And they they say things like only gold is money versus understanding that gold is just a commodity and a means of exchange for accountability. But when I look at, at Bitcoin, and I when I let go of my bias towards it, when I first saw it, I'm like, this can't be, this can't work, I I can't understand. And I realized, like, okay, just because you can't, this is a lot like you know freedom and liberty and anarchy. Just because you can't currently see how it works, doesn't mean that it doesn't work. So when I looked at it and I actually started to pick it apart and I actually started to understand cap and fractionalize and I started to understand how the blockchain worked and all the wonderful things that Bitcoin does, I realized that the people who built Bitcoin understand money better than me. And again, that's not something I say lightly because I really believe I fundamentally understand money. Yeah. Okay. So I'm glad you said this because like I, I feel like I'm a student of Satoshi Nakamoto, who's the... Uh, the name of the person who invented Bitcoin, and and we don't know who it is actually. <clears throat> it might have been. A- I mean, we don't even know if it's one person or a team of developers or whoever. We just know that they did something really cool and they didn't try to hold on to it. They put it out there and made it available to anybody that wanted to use it. Yeah, it could have been a team of developers, whatever. But when it first came along, I thought, oh great, another file type. You know, maybe these are money cranks. I couldn't really understand it. But uh, a couple of years after after it was invented, <clears throat> I was kind of uh, surrounded by some Bitcoiners. He kind of schooled me in it and sent it to me. And I began to look into it, Jack, and I realized that the Bitcoin is actually a very much like physical, physical property. I mean, you've got like real property rights. Like one unit of Bitcoin is attached to a certain title. You can easily transmit it, you know, globally. It's, it's, it's spaceless. It's weightless. It's, 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 uh, immortal at some, in some level because it lives on the blockchain. It lives on a distributed network so government can't touch it. It's exchanged peer to peer so you can bypass banks and central banks and, and financial inter- intermediaries. Uh, it uses cryptography so you only share the information you want to share and not the information you don't want to share so there's no risk of fraud. So you've got like this gigantic improvement over this crappy government money, you know, that's been hanging around for like a hundred years. And and it blew me away to discover this. And I had to throw myself into understanding it. I had to read about cryptography, I had to read about open source networks. And the more I read, the more I was just amazed to discover that like Bitcoin is actually, you know, has all the advantages of of the gold standard, but without the disadvantages, because you can't forget that the gold standard was always a government-based system, and which is kind of discouraging to think about. Yeah, because, I mean, one of the big objections that I get from people that I think just don't really fully understand Bitcoin yet is, look, if, if the banks ever want to get rid of it or the government ever wants to get rid of it, all they got to do is buy it all up and maybe dump it all out, devalue it, screw with the volatility, or just buy it and, and pull it out of circulation. Uh, because there's only going to be 20 million, 21 million, whatever it is, total Bitcoins ever 
ever in, in, and there's you know it's a relatively small number of Bitcoin and right now it's pretty cheap and there's about 12 million mines so they can just buy it all up but the only thing we will get is it, you have to get somebody to sell Bitcoin you can't get them to uh, you can't tie it up with options or shorts or calls or longs you actually have to get the person that owns the Bitcoin to part with the Bitcoin because it is true property, um, even though it's virtual property. There's even talk, you know, in the Bitcoin community because the government now owns, the U.S. government owns some Bitcoin because they stole it from uh, uh, Red Pirate Roberts, right? So there's there's been talk in the Bitcoin community about basically demonetizing those particular uh, Bitcoin that the government stole, which, I mean, I don't know how far that talk could go, but it could actually happen, actually. You know, I mean, you could demonetize, the community could demonetize, you could enact a, a revolution against the government. Well, definitely, because, you know, I mean, if you look at government agencies brag about things, like I just did a video where the, uh, the drug enforcement, not the drug enforcement agency, the uh, ATF brags about a 35% return on their actions, which of course means that they take taxpayer money and they fund the, the, the seizure of property of other individuals and then they monetize that property back into government. That's, that's the only way a government can get a 35% to one, to one return. But if they seize bitcoins and you just shut off the bitcoins they took, they, they get nothing. Yeah. I mean, how about that, huh? Wow. That. Talk about power shifting, right? <laughs> well, I, I think one of the things that people don't really realize is that part of why government and, and the power elites in the banking sector hate uh, something like Bitcoin is because there are this myriad of capital controls that they're they're currently putting in place. Things that they're doing in England now, you have to uh, show good cause to withdraw over a certain amount of your own money out of a bank account, which just it seems preposterous like i want my money okay fine fill this form and show good cause for us to give you your money it's absolutely ridiculous and uh i just got tons of letters from people uh last year who said that they had chase bank accounts that got email or got letters from their bank that said you can no longer do international wire transfers uh over a certain amount of money or a certain frequency a month and some you can't do them at all and so these people have been customers for 10 years or more of these banks and never even done one So that's that's an example of government trying to control money. Well, with Bitcoin, I can move money anywhere in the world I want to, and there are no there's no way to do a capital control. In fact, this is like one of the things people really don't get about how awesome Bitcoin is. With a paper wallet, I can basically offload my Bitcoins into private off, off, offline storage, but it's like the blockchain is sitting there waiting to recreate them is, is kind of the way that it is. And I have a code that, that's in this paper wallet, and I can use that to basically re-implement my, my money into the blockchain. It's like it's stored there but unattainable without this little piece of paper. Well, I can have that piece of paper or there's a mnemonic device with that. There's actually a password. And I can commit that to memory. Now, I really suggest you have it recorded somewhere else in case you know you have a brain hemorrhage or something and you can tell somebody else at least where to go get it or what have you. But if I don't want to, I can step off a plane in Tokyo or France or Australia or wherever I want to And with nothing on my person whatsoever, and claim my money, and use my money, and turn my money into, you know, euros, or Australian dollars, or yen, or rupees, or whatever I want to, wherever I am, and there's nothing 
anybody can do about it, and they can't seize it or take it from me because it's inside my brain. It's inside my head. There's no way. And if they what what wallet? What money? I don't know what you're talking about. Um, or I forgot. You know, you can compel me to testify against myself, but you can't compel me to remember. Whatever. They want to give a haircut to your bank account. Okay, move your money. You know, it's no problem. And I don't know if you thought about this. I bet you have actually. Uh, with the brain wallet you're talking about, which is like 26 characters, right? To un unlock your, your paper wallets and, and, uh, get your money. So let's say you're waterboarded, right? <laughs> For your password. You're not going to be able to remember it, right? I mean, it's, you're going to be too disoriented. What if they drug you? All right. So you basically have to be extremely rational and of right mind to be able to, to be able to remember it. I mean, it, it is very interesting that Ross Ulbricht, uh, has not actually coughed up his brain wallet. You know, he's the, the, uh, reputed to be the, the head of the, the Silk Road, you know, Dread Power Roberts. And they can't get at his, what might be a billion dollars, actually. They can't get to it, uh, because it's all locked away in his brain. <laughs> I mean, what can you say about this? I mean, this is a new world, right? I mean, this is, this is, this is free people reinventing freedom for themselves. You know, it's a beautiful thing. It's so inspiring. Well, and I think the other place people struggle with Bitcoin is they don't understand how it derives its value. And uh, it, it's kind of, you know, proven me right. And it's something I've been trying to teach people for a very long time, that money isn't really a thing. It's really a contract. It's a psychological contract between members of an economy. And that's where it gives it its value. It's the ability to exchange value for value that makes the money have value in the first place. Bitcoin is really a private accounting system, and then it can be exchanged into anything you want. You can use it to buy other values and goods. You can use it to contract for services. If you need dollars, you can convert it to that. If you want silver to put in, in a box, you can convert it to that. If you want to buy food and have it shipped to your house, you, you can convert it to that. It, it has its value because the members of the economy see the value in it as a means of exchange. Yeah. It's the payment network that gives it value. And I, I, I mean, just in the last few days, I can tell you uh, 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 stories. I mean, like there are more and more institutions that are willing to pay me for services in Bitcoin, right? And we're talking about mainstream institutions now. And so, the, <coughs> so they say to me, <coughs> do, you want, um, do you want PayPal? Well, not really, because actually there's like five, six, seven percent charges there, okay? It's okay. And even then, you've got five or six days of actual clearing. Well, do you want to check? Well, to hell with that. I mean, you know, I mean, what? You're going to send it through the government mail system? I mean, it's going to arrive in three weeks? I mean, whatever. Uh, well, do you want a bank transfer? Okay, then I have to get off the phone and read like 48 characters, and then it's still, it's going to be three or four days of clear. You know what I mean? It's terrible. This is stupid. I mean, it's, it's terrible. It's like a dinosaur system. It's like Flintstones or something. The whole thing is idiotic. Or, or do you want Bitcoin? And it's like, okay, what do you do then? Well, here's my uh, QR code or here's my, my address, uniquely generated public address. Copy, paste, submit, done in like 10 seconds. It's crazy. I mean, like, why do we, why does anybody do anything else? I mean, once you experience this, you realize there is no way that government monies can actually compete against the superior, you know, uh, uh, Jetsons style technology that allows real transfer of real property. Forget the banks, forget the payment systems, forget the charges, forget everything. 
you just move property from here to there using cryptography, peer to peer. It's mind, absolutely mind blowing. Yeah, I know. And, and what gives Bitcoin really the potential for mainstream adopt, adoption right now is that it remains convertible. It remains convertible to dollars. That's a big deal for people. I can, I can sell something and if I need dollars to pay, you know, for, you know, my employees payroll because they don't want to take Bitcoin or I need it to pay the electric company so that the computer we're talking on right now will run and I need dollars for that. Well, I can say, When you, when you make a payment to me for X percent to go in my bank account and X percent to stay in Bitcoin. But as more and more things become payable with Bitcoin or Litecoin or other cryptocurrencies, uh, when we start to see Bitcoin priced as Bitcoin, independent of the dollar, that's where it really starts to gain its legs. And that's where we really start to kind of stick it to the man. And that's where the huge savings on transaction fees and costs are to where it becomes an actual value for value exchange where the miners uh, verifying the transactions are making a very small transaction for the work that they do that they should be compensated for. But the real exchange of value is between me and you, and I don't have to fill out a form a mile long and get 72 credit references to be able to do business with you. And, and you don't either. Either you have the wealth or you don't. And if you do and we transfer it, I give you what you want, you give me what we want. Private commerce, beautiful, right? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, and also moving in and out of the dollar system is expensive, right? So you'd rather stay in the Bitcoin ecosphere and actually purchase things with, with, with Bitcoin. I mean, I feel this happening to me. I mean, even as like an individual consumer. I mean, I saw it like as an intellectual, um, you know, about a year ago, but now I feel it as an actual consumer. I mean, I want to leave, I want to leave the money in the Coinbase. I want to buy things with, 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 with Bitcoin and, and stop this transition in and out. We're not used to this as Americans, but a lot of people around the world are used to dealing with multiple currencies. But Americans have always been kind of spoiled. You know, we've had the dollar and we've never had to worry about it. Yeah, dollar's king, right. Well, not for long, because when you see how much you're looted, you know, in the dollar system, it's like the hell with it, you know. I mean, Bitcoin is, is, a, is a free monetary system. You know, it's, it's the way money should actually work. I can feel it happening day by day. And it's not just Bitcoin, it's all these cryptocurrencies which amuse me, you know. You know, I mean I'm I'm laughing about the whole thing. Uh like just before you called me, I just interrupted. I mean, you're probably going to think I'm crazy, but I started getting interested in this completely idiotic altcoin called Dogecoin, which is like based on a, a 2013 meme of a like a Chinese dog, okay? Uh and so so I, I got a wallet set up this morning, and a bunch of people do, dumped Dogcoin on me. Dogcoin, I guess it's called. And so then I thought, I thought, well, this is very charming. So I decided to buy a Dogcoin sticker for my for my computer. So I went on the internet, and I found that they're only available with Dogcoin. Actually, you can also. <laughs> so, so just when you called, I was in the middle of a transaction buying a Dogcoin sticker with Dogcoin that I just downloaded this morning, the world has gone insane. <laughs> just let me pause you there a second, Jeffrey, because I want to make sure that people understand you know, where you're coming from. If I had asked you five years ago how to build a currency or an economic system, you would have had one answer, and that would have been precious metal, right? Oh, yeah, I would have said, I would have said gold. And I, and I had a hope, actually, I mean, because there wasn't any other hope that we could reform the system. Uh, and, and persuade our leaders to, to make the money right. But at some point, Jack, you just kind of give up and you go, this is stupid. Uh, the political system can't be reformed and human liberty is too important to trust, 
uh, with politicians to give it to you. And, and you can't always forever and ever beg them to make the system right. It's not going to happen. I mean, we've been through a 100 years of this nonsense. We have to move forward d- defending our rights, our liberties, uh, through whatever way. And, and that, might mean, that might mean accumulating precious metals for yourself, right? Getting silver dimes you can spend in a state of an emergency. You know, accumulating uh, gold, gold coins. I mean, that's all good. But for day-to-day use, this is a digital age, an internet age. We need a digital currency, and we need that too. But whatever means we choose... The important point is the philosophy. Your rights come first. Your independence is first. Your liberties are first. And you can't wait for the government to just come around to this point of view. You have to take your initiative yourself. You know, it's great to hear you saying, uh, you know, kind of just naturally flowing into liberty, because that's where I want to go into next. Because, you know, what we're, we're here to talk to today about, we're only, you know, mentioning Bitcoin as part of this, is actually making liberty kind of a personal project, I think is the way that you put it. And I think a lot of people are pretty pessimistic about liberty because of all the things the government's been doing and continues to do. I, but I, I feel like you have a different view. You're pretty optimistic about liberty. I am as well. When you see something like Bitcoin, that just a few years ago we would go, how do we fix this? We're basically going to the government and begging the government to fix the mess that they made, that they have no interest in fixing because they benefit from it. And it just seems like you can't get anywhere. And then all of a sudden this comes along. Has that just changed your view about liberty as a whole and, and the fact that it's just really awesome and inspiring to see more and more people, especially young people, just going, we're tired of waiting. We're done. We're not, you don't get to do this anymore. We're going to go do this ourselves. You can't work money. We're going to fix money. You can't work how to take care of people that, that need assistance. We're just going to go help those people. You do your thing over there. We're going to go do things our own thing outside of the system over here. Bye-bye Exactly. Uh, Jack, you're exactly right. I mean, I mean, this whole intellectual revolution for me began when I discovered that uh, how to publish without copyright. And I saw that, that doing that, gave new life to the things I sought to do. Like, it turns out that freedom is not just some abstract ideal. You know, it's something you can actually do. And it improves your world and the world around you and makes, makes everything better. And, and, but it requires personal initiative. It, it requires a, 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 an internal dedication and a belief in freedom. And then when you actually set out to practice it, beautiful things happen. I experienced that with publishing. Okay, I'm going to get rid of copyright. And I talked to businessmen who, who decided to get rid of patent, you know, and just kind of do their own innovations. They were better off. And so, I, I mean, you know, I'm not sure if I'm making myself clear, but, you know, it's one thing to think of freedom as a theory. It's something else to think of it as something you should actually embrace it within your life. And, and I began to see it as something like a personal project, you know. And that was very exciting for me. So then after that, you know, cryptocurrency comes along. And I'm like, oh, my God, you know, this is amazing. But then it turns out, actually, the whole world can be reinvented if people take the initiative, personal initiative. We don't, we're never going to reform the political system. And, and by the way, I look, you look back at history, this is the way it's always worked. I mean, Russians didn't wait for the Soviet government to change. They developed their own institutions, their own networks, their own publishing systems and food distribution systems. It's the same in Poland. It was the same in Romania. And even if you look back at the, the, the American uh, uh, colonies, I mean, they didn't wait for their freedom to be given to them by the British uh, 
uh, colonial masters, they just built their own institutions, and at some point, those institutions were so strong, they were able to resist the imperial control. And then, uh, then they, then the, the You know, I, I think another thing that people don't realize, and this is kind of back to currency a little bit here, the, the colonies had their own money. They created their own money. Uh, we've kind of been lied to that it's no taxation without representation, Johnny. We learn that in school so that we'll be good citizens and grow up and want to be patriotic and pay our taxes. But, but the truth is, people weren't just upset about paying taxes. It's that they were being forced to pay taxes to the crown in the crown's money, And, and the, the refusal of, of England to recognize the right of the colonists to maintain their own monetary system was actually one of the chief causes of the revolution that we never hear about. Yeah. Yeah, that's really true. There is a whole monetary history here. <clears throat> you have to secede monetarily. And I, I don't think that people really realize that we could do that, you know, until <clears throat> 2008. And, you know, the timing is interesting because uh, – We saw the world economy like on the precipice of like disaster, right? Like, <clears throat> and why? Because house prices fell. Well, you know, a, a system should not be so vulnerable to to like to be on the verge of collapse just because some house, house, housing prices fell. But in fact, that endangered the whole world banking system. And so the the uh, code slingers that put together this cryptocurrency in 2008 said, well, this is a crappy system, all right? This system is failing us as a people. And sure enough, January 2009, the white paper was released, um, and one code geek, you know, threw out this, this, this code on, the, on, on an open source platform. He didn't ask Bernanke's permission. He didn't, he didn't go to a bunch of Ivy League economists and ask, ask their view. He didn't publish a paper in the American Economic Review. You know, he didn't go begging to some Senate banking committee, you know, to get his currency approved. No. He just dumped it out on a free forum, you know, and said, hey, here's my cool currency. If you like it, give it value. Two years later, we achieved dollar, dollar parity. Uh, two years after that, we're now, you know, approaching uh, $900,000 $1, per coin. You know, and comparing something like this to the government system and, and people saying, well, it could crash, it could this, it could that. Crash. I mean, look what happened in 2008. Um, you know, and I was screaming at people to get out of the way of that freight train and, and, and hopefully saved a lot of people a lot of money by telling them to get out of the market. But I, I'm a son of a coal miner from Pennsylvania. I'm, a, I'm currently a Texas redneck. And in 2008, I could see exactly what was coming. And I just feel if I can see what was coming, all these people with Harvard degrees in finance and all didn't just know that it was coming. They knew that it was going to happen 10 years before when they started the build up up to it uh, and, and caused this problem in the first place. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, it's hard to tell sometimes what they know and what they don't know. I mean, and when they're lying and when they're not lying, right? Because to pass TARP, you know, they warned us. You remember this, Jack? They were saying, oh, you're going to go to your ATM and you won't be able to withdraw money. You're going to go to the grocery store. Yeah, yeah. And they're going to go to the grocery store. There's not going to be any groceries like in Iceland, you know. And, and there's all this scare uh, stuff. I mean, how real that was, I mean, I don't, I don't really know. But it was real enough to inspire some people to go, well, you know what? This system is not working. Let's reinvent it. And that's what's, that's what's really cool about it. And boy, you were exactly right to call that, you know. I mean, that was, that was a mess. And here we are, what, five, six years later? And growth rates are like running one and two percent. You know, all their great plans and stealing trillions of dollars and, and printing trillions of dollars 
Uh, unemployment is still high. Growth rates are ridiculously low. Every the middle class is still suffering. You know that didn't do any good, did it? Well, and right now they're trying to bail out their own monetary system because what they need is more people buying debt. And this is something I, I really want to tell you about because you reach a, a much larger audience than me, and 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 often get into mainstream areas that uh, from interviews and things that I, I don't I don't get access to because people need to know about this. Right now, what they're doing is they're moving billions of dollars into government debt. And they did it without passing a law. I mean, everybody's a buzz about Obama's MyRA thing, and, and that came out. And I got tons of emails from listeners saying, you predicted this. And I'm like, this is just the first step in, in that direction. But what's already happened? And, and this goes back to, again, me telling people to get out of the market in 2008 and, and, and multiple times in, in the interim. Uh, when I'd see, like, hey, you know, there's a, there's a correction here. You need to step out of the way of this. Um, I had people email me and go, well, I want to get out, but I'm in a 401k. I'll, I'll have to pay penalties. I'll lose all my money. I'm like, well, don't, don't cash out your 401k, even if they'll let you do that, because some jobs won't. Um, but just move into the cash option. And, and I always thought that they had to have a cash option. I was always convinced of that because in setting them up for my employee, the financial liar that they would send from, you know, Edward Jones or from, you know, Ameriprise or whatever, uh, would always say something like, well, we have to have a cash option. Well, that was a policy. So what, you know, our, our neo-fascist little collective of financial institutions and the government has systematically done over the past five years is almost, almost completely eliminate the cash option in 401ks. So what's left? U.S. government bond funds is your safe bet. So what happens now is whenever anybody wants to put aside that block of money to be safe in their 401k, that nest egg, that guaranteed piece, that 20%, that you should be increasing as you get closer to retirement age, by the way, it's all going into U.S. government debt. And they're funneling all that money into their debt instrument, and they, ha they didn't have to pass a single law, no one called a congressman, and no one's even talking about this. Yeah, that is exactly right. I mean, they, that's what they want. They want you to buy it, buy it into the system in, any, in every sense and eliminate all personal autonomy. And, and, and all these 401ks are being structured that way. And the healthcare system is similarly being structured that way. I mean, everything the government's doing right now is designed to basically to wreck your life. I mean, and, and, and meanwhile, the stock market, I guess you've seen, you've seen the recently, recent days how much under pressure it's, it's, it's becoming. You know, so I think you made a good call. I mean, I don't, I don't think that regular people have any real way to make money anymore in any conventional channels. You know, it's not. It's, So, I mean, what you're actually saying at this point is something I've been saying for a while is that politics is, politics is hopeless and that people should focus on their own liberty versus, you know, trying to reform a dying, dead, bloated corpse of a system that we, we call government today. Yeah, I, I mean, you know that people are going to be saddled into this whole thing again. They're going to once again throw themselves into political campaigns. But if you're smart... You, you pretty much ignore the whole thing and, and focus all your energies on your own personal independence, your own personal financial independence, and making liberty real in your life. There are ways to do this, right? But it takes intelligence and a certain degree of cleverness and entrepreneurship and create creativity. You know, whether it's homeschooling or Bitcoin or, uh, you know, paying off your debts, as, as you so wisely urge people to do, I think. That's so crucial. Getting to safe places. Maybe it means immigration, you know, whatever it's going to be, you have to, you have to put yourself first. 
And the idea that we're going to once again trust the political system to kind of reform itself is <clears throat> utterly absurd. I mean, I, I'm not saying that every politician is like a devil or something like that. I just don't think it's worth anybody's real time to, to get involved in, 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 you know, unless you just, unless you just enjoy it, you know, politics. But I don't particularly enjoy it. And I certainly am not going to rely on the political system to save my life, you know? And I'm actually encouraged as I see more and more people completely turning their backs on established systems. I, I It's like the only thing, I think, that can give us a real hope for a better future. If you look at government control, the gold standard for government control is honestly the educational system. We get a kid, we put him into a, a desk uh, at, at four years of age now because they want to start government control, a head start not just five years old at kindergarten, and we program them from this, you know, this Prussian model all the way through high school or university or what have you, or if even tech schools are kind of run on the same model, and then we, we, we end up with people that are smart enough to be part of the machine but not smart enough to understand the machine. But what's happened with technology And what's happened with people just saying, I'm done with this? And what's happened with people homeschooling? And the homeschoolers were kooky and weird when there was only a few of them, but now there's more and more. I think people that, you know, that don't homeschool still by and large now have a very positive opinion of homeschool and homeschool children as they've won science fairs and uh, spelling bees and scholarships and they've done things that you haven't seen at all, you know, like speaking at TED Talks or what have you, coming out of the homeschool and unschool community. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's like no reason now for a kid to go to college, to spend twenty five grand or thirty five grand a year, pay three or four hundred dollars for a big thick textbook that's a complete scam. That book could never be sold outside of the closed education system. It puts money in the pocket of a professor that's going to retire or something. Nobody would pay for this book. It could be digitized and distributed to students for pennies on the dollar. The education can be digitized and, and distributed to kids for pennies on the dollar. And more and more people are just starting to build their own educational programs and go, you know what, somebody with this line of thinking doesn't need to do you know, a class in 19th century French literature or some stupid crap like that. And, and we're, what I actually see happening, and I don't just mean the universities, I mean grade schools, middle schools, junior highs, high schools, secondary, post-secondary, universities, tech schools, you name it, I think in 10 years, and I've been saying this recently, you will not recognize education in America. There'll still be some public schools, there'll still be some of the dinosaurs around it, then they won't all be gone. But there will be so many options and so many people stepping outside the system and the system will be in a state of advanced change. People think I'm crazy when I say this, like, oh, it'll never change, it's too big, it's got too much money. I'm like, no, no way, not at all. This is happening right now, right in front of us. We've got Khan Academy. We've got the Connections Academy. There's all types of options, and they're just beginning. And you can see that government is afraid. Because once again, you see people in the liberty movement doing the one thing that we haven't started doing until very recently, understanding our biggest weapon is apathy. We don't need you. Go away. Goodbye. I'm going to go do this on my own without you. That's what they're really afraid of, that we'll turn around and say we don't need them. And I see that happening probably two places the biggest right now. One, the cryptocurrency thing we've been talking about, and the other in the educational system. What say you? Yeah, and the other problem is that even kids that are in university now, it was like they start university after the second year, 
uh, they're like, what the hell am I doing here? I mean, I'm getting more and more in debt. I hate my classes. These professors are stupid. They don't care. Uh, I, I feel more and more behind. I, I, I talked to a, a, a kid the other day. It was very interesting. I had a lunch with, with a computer science uh, major. And he's like, you know what? I got to get out of school because the longer I'm in school, the more disadvantaged I am in the market for uh, code, code geeks. And he was feeling really scared for himself. Because he, he was afraid that he's going to put his resume out there after four years, and people are not going to say, this man has a degree in computer science. They're going to read it and go, this man wasted four years sitting at a desk when he could have been working and actually learning stuff. And so, he, and so he's planning to drop out of school because in his own interest, because otherwise it's like a danger to him professionally to have a resume that suggests he did nothing for four years, expect, except spend about one hundred twenty-five thousand uh, dollars useless money. Very interesting. Yeah. So this is a serious matter. I mean, unless you're planning to go into uh, medicine or, or law or, or something, something you know, one of these kind of professions that require that, uh, you know, there's a real serious issue whether or not you're actually using your time well. And, and much less spending your, your money well. I mean, for God's sake. And the opportunity costs of college are growing. They're intensifying. So I think you're exactly right. Ten years, we're not even going to recognize the system anymore. Well, I mean, especially with technology, coding, programming, if you've been learning out of a book for four years and the book was written the year you started, then the, the technology you're working on is five years old and the people that are out there doing things today are working on tomorrow's technology today. <clears throat> Did you see John Kerry's uh, comment that it's very difficult to run the world uh, in the face of the Internet? He said something like, the business of government is very difficult given the Internet. He was like, damn right, right? We've, we've, we've broken your education monopoly. We're, we're on the verge of doing that. We've smashed their, their communications monopolies, right? We're on the verge of crushing their, their monetary monopolies. And even in juridical sense, there's so many private alternatives. Uh, to government uh, jur juridical uh, institutions uh, in, in the realm of security, right? They can't, they can't confiscate our guns. I mean, every time they try, it, it, you know, people get more, you know. So it's like one area after another, the people are rising up against these, these failed institutions. And it's unsustainable. I mean, I, I think we're going to look back and go, oh, the 20th century was like a gigantic mistake, basically. We thought the government could run everything. We were just wrong. This government's stupid, it's inefficient, it's, it's malevolent. Uh, essentially, we have to, you have to, the thing that builds civilization is freedom itself. Individuals making uh, choices that are in their own personal interest and cooperating with others. I mean, that's essentially it. I mean, <clears throat> we're, I think, you know, like in two centuries, people are going to look at the 20th century and go, well, that was weird. <laughs> yeah, hopefully they'll look back at it too. Though is the dawning of a of a revolution with the work that folks like you and I are doing, and and hopefully you know it'll it'll transcend down because in some ways we're we're the the older generation now. We need the the younger generation to step up. But I, I'm seeing it all over the place in 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 one one thing after the other. I think you know we'll also probably look back at 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 some of the stupid laws. Uh, that existed at this time and wonder what possible need was there for them. Um, you know, as you see people doing things like decriminalizing marijuana, I'm not, I'm not a pot smoker or anything, but I mean, it, it's, it's a ridiculous summation that, oh, we need this to keep drugs out of our, our, our schools, right? That's the big champion issue. We have to keep the drugs out of schools. They can't keep drugs out of prison. 
Free government going to tell you they're going to keep drugs out of your schools when they can't keep them out of a fully guarded prison is a ridiculous summation. And I think there's just more and more things that we're seeing start to crumble in this old paradigm uh, that, that's finally you know starting to 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 go into its death throes. Honestly. Yeah, and it's very interesting to see people pushing back against these marijuana laws in particular, you know. I mean, like, like I got to tell you, like, pot isn't really my thing, uh, but I think it's hilarious how the whole uh, drug war has backfired now, you know. Uh, uh, I, I, I'm constantly startled at the ubiquity of, of marijuana, you know, just its use and its distribution. Um, now, keep in mind, we, we've, we've had a drug war running for 40 years. Right. Using, you know, jails and guns and cops and power and, you know, belligerence and propaganda. And, you know, and what has been the result? You know, an explosion of popularity. You know, the very thing they try to get rid of, you know, and, and, and it's not just about drugs. It's, it's like about everything, really. I mean, they tried to get rid of foul shame when they when they uh, arrested you know the, the you know when they criminalized Napster and took it down, and now foul shame is the way that everybody does business all over the world. You know, they tried to eliminate online pharmacies. Now there's like a thousand of them with a quick Google click. You know, uh, drug war. They've tried. You know, everything they try to do, like the Silk Silk Road. They took down the Silk Road. And all these government agents were celebrating, oh, look at our great victory. You know, within like a week, there were a dozen more already sprouting up. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, it's, it's like everything government seeks to ban becomes like hugely popular. <laughs> it's, it's almost the case that you, you almost want them to attack uh, everything you love. Because you're right, it's like, it's like they're almost like in quicksand now. And the harder they fight, the deeper they sink. But, but the other side of that is there's still a lot of huge restrictions. And we go around teaching people this is the freest nation in the world. And uh, quite honestly, if my wife wasn't so happy with, uh, with Texas, we'd probably be in Costa Rica where I can make a quarter million dollars a year before I pay a penny of income tax on it. Uh, and I can open accounts throughout the world that I'm not permitted to do as an American. And there's many other advantages there. I, I, I don't really want to leave America. I don't. But, but there are some things that when you look at it, you realize that the, the supposed liberty we have is an illusion. But I guess the encouraging thing is how much of it is being taken back in movements like we're talking about today. That's true. Costa Rica is a beautiful place, actually. But there are so many places. Yeah, so I, I, I was there a week you know, in the 1980s, and I just fell in love. I was just in Australia. What an amazing place, actually. I mean, there, there are so many beautiful places around the world where there's not this kind of intense police state environment that that's grown up over the last you know 10 or 15 years in the u.s it's it's genuinely creepy what's happened to our country yeah, kind of on that note i know you are are uh, familiar with carla greckel uh from the free state project in new hampshire um but she's from south africa originally and what she said to me was americans do not see the apparatus of a police state being built around them because they've always had it pretty good and it's slowly being put in place I've seen where it, it goes to. I lived in a police state, and now I'm watching it being built right in front of you, and, and most people in this country just don't see it. That's very interesting. I talked to a woman from Poland who said something interesting to me, actually. Um, I, I was very uh, – this was uh, last year. She said that she was there before the revolution and then after, 
And she said, before the revolution in Poland happened, what, 1989, 1980, whatever it was, that every, every citizen understood that the government was the enemy and, and that if you wanted to thrive and survive, you had to get around the law and that the law was the thing that was destroying your life and that your own decisions were the things that were going to make you thrive. And she said that everyone got that. Like they knew who the enemy was and they knew the path to freedom. I mean, very interesting, right? I mean, and I wonder at what point we're going to get to that. We're not there yet in this country. Yeah, I, I think people are still too busy being proud of and polishing their chains and building their own prison walls, and they're too, still too vested in the system. But is more and more tyranny is evident. Is like our young generation is really pissed off at uh, you know Obama. Unfortunately, they don't get it's like the whole thing, but really pissed off about the NSA spying thing. And more and more things that people are you know videotaping the police and, and some very abusive situations and all. And it's starting to wake them up. But I agree, they're they're just not awake yet. I think I think of it. I don't know if you like the Hunger Games series or watch those movies, but it's a very interesting thing. It's like the, the total state like grabs people and puts them into an arena and tells them to kill each other, you know? And, and then at some point in the series, they realize, oh, wait a minute, you're not the enemy. Our enemy is the people who put us here, right? So, so that's what we need to arrive at as a people and realize that you and I are not enemies, uh, that our fellow citizens were not enemies. It's not about, uh, you know, gaining control over each other. It's the Leviathan state. It's the power elite to set up this system. They're the enemies. And we just need to kind of like get out of that system, find the flaw, blow it up, and move on with our lives. I mean, but that's a big step. So um, with that said, I mean, that's what you're trying to do with Liberty Me. Can you tell folks about Liberty Me? And for those of you that are, you know, wanting to see this, it's liberty.me. That's actually a domain. There are things beyond the .com and .net world. So, so you know, what is Liberty Me? So I, I, I mean, it's, so Liberty Me is, is two things. It's a philosophy, and it's a philosophy you and I have been talking about. I mean, I, I want to get beyond just theory. I think theory is important, but I, I think we have to take that next step in actually implementing the theory. So, so uh, I wanted to create a technology that really focused on a series of practical areas. In many ways, you're the kind of prophet of the site in a way because you've you mean you saw this like long before I did, right? So uh, I'm I'm only a recent convert to this idea of applying uh, the idea of freedom in our individual lives. So it's a philosophy, but it's also a technology. I mean, I'm throwing some of the most amazing code that's ever been thrown at any project, and and developers are telling me this that our ambitions are are crazy, but we're achieving them. I mean, I watch this thing unfold every day. We've been at work building for four months. It's it's a friendship network, a publishing system, and a content delivering system totally dedicated to liberty, all rolled into one thing with the news feeds and and chat and individual multi-blogging websites for every single member. I mean, and I've commissioned a lot of guides to distribute information. I mean, I'm putting everything I know into this one uh, into this one platform. And technologically speaking, you know, I've been building websites for a very long time. <clears throat> the possibilities have only now arrived. And I only realized this this last spring when I saw virtualization uh, in server technology that used to cost like six figures, uh, like three years ago, is now actually affordable. Uh, Multi-blogging capabilities that, again, would have been six figures uh, three or four years ago are now available in the hundreds of millions of units, you know. So when I saw this technology arrive where we can have like infinite scalability, 
that I said, okay, now's the time. We have to move on this. So I'm, I'm building an infrastructure of, of, of like a liberty-based city, and I want it to scale upwards, you know, for, forever to allow people to exchange ideas, information, and to be like personally empowered to, to build out liberty in their own lives in cooperation with others. And, and basically, let's leave the political system. Uh, let, let's restructure our own lives, and then, and then let's, let's let history sort of roll and see what happens. I, and my prediction is that Liberty Me is going to make a gigantic contribution to making the old world structures of state control just look like a gigantic and irrelevant anachronism. We can outrun them. We can do it, but we have to take the initiative in our own lives. We have to have the right tools to do it. So Liberty Me is the tool to do that. That, that's what I'm doing. Sounds like what you're doing is building the Amazon.com of liberty, right? It's, you know, it's the platform that enables the exchange of liberty. Lots of people sell lots of things on Amazon. Amazon's really a platform. Uh, so Liberty Me is the, the platform for liberty. There you go. I love it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I was just doing some research, I guess, yesterday, last night, because I wrote an article about this. But did you know that that... Um, back in 2000, the government tried to make its own email system. No, I did not. Uh, to compete with private email. And they thought they were going to uh, put private email out of business. I mean, the experiment lasted two years until it folded. And why did it fold? Because nobody used it. Okay, It became stupid. So if you can look at that as a metaphor for the entire Leviathan state, if we can develop technologies that are better than anything the state provides, you know, we could see a mass, even globalized secession where government just becomes ridiculous and irrelevant and unsustainable. And I think that's where we're headed, which is not to say it's not going to continue to be vicious, right? Because they want, they want our money and they want their power, right? But at some point, ultimately, the people outnumber the rulers, always. And if we act the right way, we can disable the system. I really genuinely believe that. So, so let me get this right. The government had this this private uh, this private email system that was already out there. People were using it, and and they actually thought that people would sign up for like U.S. government email. I mean, what what was this thing called? And I mean, what was the point of this stupid thing? I mean, you're talking later late enough along that you know it. There was plenty of solutions already in place that people were already in love with. Yeah. No one in Halsa had a ridiculous name. I can't even remember it. I just wrote about it last night. It was so long and stupid. Like, they couldn't even market the damn thing. Oh, I forgot to tell you this part. You know how much they wanted to charge per message? A dollar seventy. So how, how did the government think they were going to get people to pay for something that they already had for free? Yeah, the government's rationale was, hey, this is an even better service than our regular mail. It's faster. It's more secure. Uh, and you know, so, so clearly people, if people are paying 50 cents for a letter, they'll pay a dollar 70 for an even better product. This is what government thinks, right? So yeah, I mean, this is the most unused product like ever. It's so funny. Do you know what I would love? I would love somebody had to use this. Like somebody had to decide this was a good idea. And I don't mean somebody with a government budget or whatever. There has to be like the one guy that like signed up. Like, you know, as long as the government could make the website work where you signed up for this thing or whatever and thought, this is great. I'll pay them. And, and here's why I'm going to, I'd love to know the rationale as to why the hell anybody would have used this thing 
And I'm sure somebody did. What's funny about this, I was reading like the speech by the guy who introduced it, and he says the reason everybody's going to use it is that the laws against mail tampering will apply to email. And everybody likes these kinds of laws because they can punish somebody who does something wrong. And I was, in, I was reflecting on that and <clears throat> thinking about how much government exaggerates the value of its own sort of tools. You know, they think that forcing people to do stuff is like really cool. And, and that the rest of us are going to value them because they have this weird power to beat people up and to, like, hang people and to jail people. But you know what? That actually turns out not to be quite so valuable. It's actually a lot more valuable to be able to serve others and bring value to the world, you know? Government always inflates the value of its own technologies, or I should say its own powers, really. And, and they're not actually not that valuable, it turns out. You know, you're, you're, you're right. And I think that value could be created in ways that people cannot even conceive of until they start thinking about some of the things you've been talking about, uh, with being free and allowing other people to collaborate and not trying to possess and own everything and not bringing in the man to sue somebody if they happen to, to use what you've already created. Cause let me, I, I just was watching this, this movie and I don't remember which one it was, but they were saying like, imagine that it was 20 years ago. Or maybe even 30 years ago. Remember back into the mid-80s or something like that? And, and, and you're an economics professor and I'm a student. And um, you say to me, I want you to give me an idea so that when you get out of this, this economics course and these business courses with your degree and go out in the world and try to create a business of your own, what are you going to do, young man? And I say, here's my idea for a business. What I'm going to do is I'm going to create an amazing computer product that will be able to compete with the biggest operating systems that are in the world today. And it will do things that none of the current systems do better. It won't be right for everybody, but it'll have a product niche, and it'll do things in a very uh, amazingly agile way. And it'll be something that's written in a way where people can adapt it to what they really want it to do. And here's the best part. I'm going to have this team of developers all over the world And some of the developers that are going to be building this for me will actually be working for my competition. And they're, they're going to work for me for free, right? They're going to work for me for free, and they're going to build this thing at no cost whatsoever, and then we're going to release it to, to the entire world, and, and then people are going to use it and adapt it, and it will become a platform, and there'll be plenty of people that will make money from it, including developers that participated along the way and know how to make it do the cool things that it can do, but I won't pay a dime to have this thing developed. You would have thought I was stark raving mad, and you would have told me I lived in a world of make-believe, and I was never going to build a business, and today we call it Linux. Hey, I, you know, listen, uh... I, I was just reflecting on this because I, I, I snagged the other day a Chromebook. Do you know about this machine? Oh, yeah. Okay. Unbelievable. 250 bucks for the most advanced model, right? Based on a Linux operating system running, running a, a browser invented on an open source platform by, by, by Google. And then, like, my mind kind of went back to the old, uh, antitrust suit against, against Microsoft. They said, Oh, Windows, you have monopoly power. 
you know, you must untie your Windows Explorer from your operating system in order to give Netscape, you know, a fair chance at the market. And 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 on we went with the lawsuits and the and the court trials and the depositions and the hearings. And it went on for years and years and years and years, like 10 years of this nonsense. Meanwhile, the computer industry is advancing. Now you're in a situation where Windows Explorer has a tiny percentage of the market relative to every other conceivable browser. And the Windows operating system itself is, uh, you know, uh, has been bested not only by, by iOS, but now you've got this open source Linux based, uh, system that's like running just a browser. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, what, yeah. I mean, I think what we find is different technologies do different things better if we, if we get out of the way and let people develop them, uh, and don't try to interfere. I mean, you mentioned Windows having this huge monopoly, but I mean, what I'm doing when I get off the air from you is I'm finally, I'm finally done with Windows. I'm, I'm ordering an iMac because as a content producer, I, I just can't deal with the headaches and problems that I have with Windows anymore. Um, it does some things really well, but when it comes to content production, uh, video production, audio production, I mean, Mac's got, you know, Everybody beat, really. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I mean, <clears throat> I'm kind of a, a like one of the last holdout Windows fans, even though I don't even use it anymore. I have some sympathy for for that company. I mean, I, I think they moved into the consumer space real fast, and uh, but I use only iMac now. But look, I'm moving more and more into this Linux world. But I think your 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 essential point is we have to let the market run itself, right? Like, yeah, I mean, like like humanity has to kind of evolve. We have to we have to develop things organically, test things, and and you kind of have a bunch of mucky mucks in Washington decide what technology is is right, and this is a this is this is ridiculous. They don't know really. They they get us bound up in their bureaucratic systems and make everything worse. I mean, I I don't believe that freedom is like perfect, but the the point is that freedom is sort of self correcting, and at least we're always headed in the right direction. You know, towards towards progress instead of regress. At least uh, at least that's true under liberty. It's not going to give us utopia, but at least it gives us a chance for improving the world. Whereas the government doesn't do that. They just make everything worse. You know, and in the world of, like, monopoly uh, things that government says we need their protection for, I mean, there is some places where it, it's easy to maintain a monopoly, especially if you're government and you can tax and use guns. Like, roads, you have to lay down concrete. There's a huge infrastructure cost. You have to gain access to easement and things like that. But when it comes to technology, those days are over. I mean, think about it this way. Imagine if you if you think of AOL, right? You've got mail, right? And, and people had AOL, and AOL was this just huge, massive company. And then around 1999, people started to in-mask it onto DSL and cable modem services because it was faster. They would get their service installed, and the first thing they would ask the, the, the installer is, how do I get to my AOL? Without even an understanding at that point that, you know, you don't need AOL for any of this stuff at all. And that should have been the key, you know, indicator the mighty were about to fall, and a lot of people didn't get it. Now AOL is this kind of obscure piece of a cable company with this little niche website. It will never be what it was. Um, and, and when we look at it that way, a lot of these monopolies are self-corrected because imagine if there was a company, inflation-adjusted, the size of AOL in 1900. It would have been the big fish, the dominant player in this space for a hundred years. It would have been a century long company. And today we have those, these behemoths build, rise to power and, and become dwarfs really overnight. And that leads to new innovations. And it, it's an awesome time to be alive. 
You know, Jack, I have to, I have to tell you, you know, I, I think of you as being this kind of, this kind of gritty person who knows about all kinds of things I don't know about, like, like farming and like animals and, and guns and like that kind of stuff. But you're like some sort of techno master too. I mean, you really know this world. I mean, it's very impressive. It's kind of mind blowing. I love that. I love that about you. Well, thank you. And I, I do get people telling me I'm like this techno genius once in a while. I don't think so. I think I'm, I'm technically adept enough to do the things that I need to do and smart enough to know what I can't do. But when it really comes down to it, like there's no way I'm as quick to pick up new technologies and things as, as I was when I was, let's say, 20 or 25. And it's, it's those young people out there that are going to pick this stuff up and run with it and go to the next layer with it. Because, frankly, I'm kind of an old fogey in the world of technology. And even in your 40s, you, you've already, you know, you're you you being outpaced by these kids that are growing up now with a tablet or a phone in hand. And, and, and that's a good thing that they're advancing this stuff. But seeing that some of them aren't sitting around being teacups, as I call them, and getting out and solving these problems gives me a lot of encouragement for our future. And hopefully the work that people like yourself and I are doing, it's not just for now. It's a legacy for tomorrow for for people to build on. That's what I think you're doing with Liberty Me. And that's what I'm trying to do with the Survival Podcast is, is give people a platform, that a starting point, where what we're doing isn't really... It's nowhere near the, 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 the goal. It's the foundation so that people can take that, shape it, make it their own, and move forward. And, and I think we need to be thinking that way, especially those of us who have had some success in life and, and gotten somewhere and thinking about what we're leaving for the next generation to pick up and run with, because the reality is we all only have so many days on this earth. We're all born with a clock that's counting down to the time that we leave. And when we leave, it would be nice to think that our contribution mattered beyond just us being here. Yeah, and but and 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 also, you know, I think I think really um it all comes down to how you regard the future. Are you going to face it with with fear and and loathing? And, and, uh, you know, intimidation, like, oh, I don't understand. Or are you going to jump in with a sense of hope, opportunity, and, and, and a can-do spirit that says, I can learn things, I can, I can take things on, I can create my own freedom in my own space. Right now, uh, I, as you say, we have limited days on this earth, let's make the best of it, and don't let anybody stand in our way. And, and don't go, always go begging to our masters for permission to live a good life, for God's sake, you know? The, it's a matter of personal empowerment and attitude more than anything else. Well, I completely agree. And at this point, could you just tell people, I mean, you've written some books. I'm sure you'd like it if people maybe would uh, uh, purchase your books. That's one of the ways that, you know, authors actually make a living is people actually choose to, to buy their books and, uh, and learn from them. So how people can get your books and then this, this immense project that you're working on uh, to help people develop liberty in their own lives, uh, how, could, how they can be part of that as well. Hey, thanks. So I've written like five books, and I'm really happy for anybody to buy them from Amazon. It's and and they're they're fun. They're a little bit silly, uh, and I always try to be always try to be both fun and enlightening in some ways. But if you if you want to if you want to be part of my little uh, project, it's not a little project. It's actually gigantic. It's consuming my life. The website is liberty.me. You can just sign up for updates. I mean, we are like 30 days away 
from from our closed beta uh, and then about 45 days away from an open open beta. And I can tell you that I've got a serious startup culture around me. You know, I mean, we're working 24-7 with, with developers all around the world. We're eating pizza for, at our desk and Chinese food and working 16-hour days. And uh, look, what are we all trying to do? I mean, we're trying to provide opportunities to just bring about a freedom revolution through our own individual efforts. You know, forget politics. Forget all this nonsense. Let's do it right here, right now in your own life. That's what Liberty Me is about. Now, you guys, to, to help fund this, you guys ran a Indiegogo or, or, or Kickstarter or something like that, and, and it was quite successful, right? We, we did it, and we raised 200K, actually. And, and, and that in 40 days. So that was like outrageous, right? I think it might be the most successful, uh, Indiegogo campaign in the Liberty space ever. And I was just so thrilled by that. And that's why I'm like crazy optimistic about what's happening to us right now. I mean, I've got, I've got a capital, uh, cushion to go forward to survive, to build something fabulous and lasting for the ages that's scalable and it's going to become marvelous. And, and I, I really want a broad space that's very inclusive. If you love Liberty, I want to be there. I want our platform to be there for you. I mean, that's as simple as that. You know, I don't want, I'm not interested in philosophical argumentation. I'm interested in living out the ideals that we believe in. That's all. Well, like I said, I, I think what you're building is like the Amazon of, of, of liberty, where people can use the platform for the, the commerce of liberty, to exchange liberty through the development of hopefully things that we, we haven't even thought of yet, because what you're doing is enabling people – And I thank you for that. I thank you for all the work you've done over the years, the, the work that you've done for the Liberty Movement, and the fact that, you know, at, at this point you could probably be coasting, but you're not. You're doing things that, that really have never been done before. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that you'll get a lot of our audience over there uh, at Liberty Me today, uh, signing up for your updates so they can be part of this when you guys officially kind of go into a, a beta launch or what have you. I think you got like a, a, a closed beta, like when you go to your open beta, that'd be awesome and all. And, and thank you for being on the show, Jeff. Free man, this has been a great interview. Hey, Jack, it's really great to be with you. I mean, it was wonderful to meet you in Texas. I mean, it was a real honor. I feel some sense of awe towards you and what you've created. I'm, I'm really just so very much your student, and I appreciate so much being on your podcast today. It means a lot to me. Well, again, man, thank you uh, again for being here for all that you do. And, folks, I'll have uh, links to liberty.me, Liberty Me, uh, on today's show notes, along with links to uh, Amazon.com where you can pick up uh, Jeffrey's books if you'd like to. I certainly recommend that. And with that, this has been Jack Speargo today along with Jeffrey Tucker, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.